And it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our first speaker this morning, who is uh, Keith Sinclair, the Bishop of Birkenhead. Uh, he's a member of Church Society, a keen supporter and encourager of those of us who are trying to work in Church Society uh, for God's glory in the Church of England. He's also uh, the chair of the executive group of the Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, EFAC, with whom we are in positive and uh, encouraging, supportive fellowship. So uh, please uh, welcome him this morning as he comes to speak to us. This Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Uh, discovering where Christchurch Mayfair here is and, uh, and be with you for the day. Um, yeah, Lee, you are a constant inspiration and encouragement and I just want to start by thanking you and what you are doing in your witness, in your writing, in your encouragement and spurring us all on. Um, personally, I've been immensely grateful for that. Um, <clears throat> so it's really good to be with you. We're giving this day to sexuality and good news for the Church of England. Look around. We're here, all of us, because of sex. A man and a woman have sex, they're married, probably, hopefully, and we came along. Many here are parents, grandparents, and because of the man and the woman, we married someone, somebody else was born who is growing up, and if they are married, somebody else may be born. Sex like death, like life, is universal, and we need no apology for speaking about it. I hope this talk and others today will be a resource, as I, I'll explain how, what I'm trying to do, as I prepare, and I hope this is right, and if it's, I, I don't think I'm going to be saying anything that would be hugely new to anybody in this room, but I'm thinking, given Lee's track record of turning some of these things into resources for the wider church, I'm hoping this will be of help beyond this room, and part of the purpose of today is to test it out with you and see if you think that's right, or how it can be tweaked or developed in a way that can improve it and make it more helpful, because never mind ourselves, the huge need for teaching in our churches has never been greater. So youth groups, school lessons, home groups, um, and maybe in our own preaching as well. Uh, when I became a bishop in 2007, uh, 12 years ago, I was asked, will you teach the doctrine of the Christ as the Church of England has received it? Will you refute error? Will you hand on entire the faith that is entrusted to you? And I answered, by the help of God, I will. And today, you are giving me the chance to do that, and I'm hoping that it will be a help, uh, both for here and for others. And what I've done is to do a leaflet that is out there on your uh, uh, chairs, very much a work in progress, may very well get reshaped by what we do today with feedback and so on. Not every reference by any means to buy, to, in the Bible to sex and the Word of God, but as I prayed about uh, Lee's request to come and speak today, um, my overriding sense was not to go into individual texts, they're there, we need to pay close attention to them, but we need to see these texts along with the whole sweep of the Bible story, and then we will see these texts living and shaping a community that was designed to bring God's blessing to the world. 
And as we see the sweep of the word of God, as it talks about sex and marriage and love, we'll see, I hope, how the spirit of God who caused the the scripture to be written for our learning wants to speak to us and shape us and help us in the shaping of others in that community uh, in this hour of the life of the church and the world. In the ordination service of a bishop, Uh, the first gift that he or she receives is a Bible. Uh, Not because he or she has not got one or not spent enough time reading it, we hope, (laughs) or listening and preaching from it, but because it is a sign of the authority, so the ordinal says, given you to build up Christ's church in truth, hear our words of eternal life, take them for your guide and declare them to the world. These words for eternal life include the words about sex and marriage. And they are intended to guide us as well as those for whom they were first written. And they're not just for us in some holy huddle. They're intended to bring blessing to the world as the world receives them as the word of God who created us. So what I want to do is just take you through these words and uh, what you will see are living words which shaped and will go on shaping the people of God. And I hope to recognize and be revived and renewed as we receive their authority uh, and who is speaking to us through the words. I'm not going to go through all the texts that are there by any means. I'll highlight some of them and leave others for you to explore at your leisure. I've put them so that we can see how all, the, how all pervasive throughout scripture is this teaching on sex and marriage and creating a community. And I've put also references in the words there to the teaching about law and instructions and doctrine, not only that, but also about the lives lived, which show what it is to receive the word of God and to live within it. In particular, they show us in the scriptural stories Um, the reality of our flawedness, our brokenness, our sinfulness in sexual matters as in so much else and we see how the words of God shape or do not shape the life of the people of God. Two sections to what I've said covering Old and New Testaments up to the gospel broadly I've grouped the text according to gift and promise uh, sex and marriage and then rebuke and warning and then a little bit in Acts and uh, letters of the New Testament ta- text more mixed so I've just grouped them together and uh, we can, you can see how some they, they, they shift in one direction or another so let's have, just have a quick kind of going through the Old Testament gift and promise and rebuke and warning gift and promise and the core text of course from Genesis 1 and 2 which are just exquisitely beautiful words How could there be a higher description of our dignity than to be the image bearers of God? People say that my oldest son, Peter, looks like me. He works at St. James's Clerkenwell, uh, and he does. God says in his word, you are like me. You think, you love, you trust, you desire men and women. But I'm different from my son, and the living God is different from us, gloriously different, but we bear his image everything else in the whole of scripture about sex men and women marriage comes from these texts in Genesis 1 and 2 there's no embarrassment in having described men and women in this exalted way 
And in the second account of creation in Genesis 2, speaking of the physical union, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, one flesh, sex as it is in Genesis before the fall, men and women, a man and a woman, naked and not ashamed. And going back to Genesis 1.31, it's very good. It's very good. And if you don't want to go through all those other texts and everything, there are references there, just go straight to Matthew 19, 46, where Jesus quotes these verses in Genesis and Ephesians 5, 31, where Paul quotes the same text. God is, this is God speaking. And he's not stopped speaking because Jesus has come along or the apostle. It is the same truth running all the way through scripture. Sex is for a man and a woman. And sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. Just go up through some of the other sections with me. See in the covenant section there, God promises a rainbow. How tragically significant that that symbol has been used to deny its biblical purpose in the Genesis account. The story of Noah is about recreation. As it is not just Noah and his sons and wives, it's about the whole of creation, male and female. Or in the later covenant with Abraham down to Jacob, families, flesh, genealogies, because men and women are made in God's image and the earth is filled and blessed. A sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, a sign of the sexual organ of the man in submission to God. Sex matters and it matters in God's creation and covenant. Or the law. The same pattern. And note the Ten Commandments and the primary, what is the primary purpose of the law? To protect creation. To enable the covenant people to live in the creation God's way. So after the Sabbath when we rest and enjoy God's good gifts, what is next? Honor your father and mother. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They, in God's good purpose, have given us life. And why the next commandment protecting life itself against murder is immediately followed by the command against adultery, which destroys marriage. Where sex is being used wrongly and sinfully and the law about marriage and family because the people need to obey it to enjoy the land and experience life as God intended it. In the history uh, books in the, in the Old Testament. Story after story, including outsiders like Rahab and Ruth, show recipients of marriage as beneficiaries of the promise and gift of God in other cultures. In these stories, we see how law and life go together, including the story of David and Jonathan, the goodness of love between a man and a man, not a sexual relationship, because that's not what God intended for us in creation, and it's not what God has given us sex for. And if any doubt, go on to the wisdom literature where the way the law loves life is celebrated supremely in the Song of Songs, where in the light of biblical truth, erotic love can be enjoyed safely and wonderfully and received within the gift of God. And then the prophets. They relate the gift of sex and marriage to the well-being of our relationship with God himself. The picture of the bride and the bridegroom describes the intimacy and commitment of the people of Israel and the living God. Look at Isaiah 54, 5. Your maker is your husband. 
Or Isaiah 62, 4, you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. The life given by God in marriage in the sex between a man and a woman is to be known even in the exile as the law protects the people. And even in exile will enable sons and daughters to be recipients of the Holy Spirit. See the prophecy of Joel and the Old Testament going through all the prophets ending with the words of Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Parents, children, hearts turn to each other. All of this is good. All of this is core to the enjoyment of creation, the experience of the covenant and the blessing of the nations. Sex and marriage, a man and a woman in the image of God down the generations. And just because it's so good and so full of the covenant promise, it's why there is the rebuke and warning See how the relationship of the man and woman with God and each other is attacked at the very beginning. Did God say, you will not die? Again, you could skip all the rest of the scriptures and come to these verses in Genesis 3, 1 to 5 to understand the deep malaise and pain and fractures of our world and our identity as men and women because we've doubted the gift and denied the promise and listen to the serpent. The disobedient feeds on itself and multiplies in sin. So the covenant story of Abraham, there is Lot who walks away. And the ensuing account of judgment in Genesis 18 and 19 is a picture of judgment echoed all down scripture, culminating in Revelation 18 and the fall of Babylon. A parading of what happens to a city and culture that in the end refuses the gift of God. And here is this, these real life stories woven into these accounts of pain and violence when this gift is refused. So to protect the gift, the Levitical law includes in the commandment details about who should marry, the prohibition of, against same-sex practice in Leviticus 18.22 alongside the prohibition of incest, bestiality and child sacrifice. In these chapters, the meaning of sexual holiness is outlined in a teaching that continues to be formative for the people of God under the old and new covenants. In 1 Peter 1.16, calling us to be holy, quoting Leviticus 19.2. The Old Testament follows through with story after story of what this does to the people and the communities if we ignore what God has given for our good. It's the opposite of wisdom. It is folly in the eyes of God. And the prophets warn the people of the consequences of judgment if they reputedly refuse the gift of God. As we read the prophets, we see how immorality, the generic term to describe sexual activity outside sex between a man and a woman and sex between a man and a woman in marriage is linked to idolatry and injustice. And the pollution of the land, actually. I find of all the scriptures and the prophetic words of Isaiah 28, 17, the most telling. We have made a covenant with death, for we have made lies our refuge. 
Jeremiah derides priests and prophets who make light of this in other people, Jeremiah 6, 13 to 18. And you can track through the other prophets, the mourning of the land. None of these texts are exhaustive. And we must note that alongside the rebuke and warnings in relation to sexual activity and marriage between a man and a woman, the scriptures include these denunciations which dominate the prophetic writings against inequality and injustice, especially in relation to the widow and the orphan. And I want to make very clear that I'm not making any suggestion in this address focusing on sex and marriage, that the other sins... <laughs> Idolatry and injustice are equally destructive of what God intends. But what I want us to see is how the words of God relate to each other. We can't siphon off the words in relation to sex and marriage and pretend that they don't affect idolatry and injustice. Who suffers the most in the relational dysfunction of our culture? The poor and the children. See this week's report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. How do we, they asked these two quotes, I couldn't believe it as I read it at the end of the, the, the press, press briefing. How do we build a functional society out of dysfunctional lives is a question they ask. The consumer society is afraid of becoming the consumed. The answer to that question comes in the word of God. Just as the gift blesses every part of our life, so the disobedience destroys and touches every part, which is why we need a saviour and Lord, and why the living God himself became the word made flesh. So now in the second part, as we come to the Lord Jesus and the gospel. When we come to the Lord and the gospels, we come to a people whose knowledge of the word of God is shaped by everything from Genesis to Malachi and who are acutely aware of the promise and the gift and the rebuke and the warning. What will God do? And the answer comes in the gospel. I've made it on Matthew, but you can see some of the parallel texts and the other material in the other gospels in relation to marriage. See the extent of the gift and the promise as well as the continued reality of the rebuke and warning. Just note the genealogies, all the promises of God in sex and marriage between men and women woven into the story of the gospel, including Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. Even now, the reality of sin doesn't prevent the promise and grace of God from working. This is not a story of perfect people at all. It's about God coming and working with imperfection, including sexual imperfection. We may smile at the pictures of the Holy Family, but the key tension of sex and marriage is not edited out of the infant narratives. The virgin birth is not at all a denial of the beauty and goodness of sexual love and marriage between a man and a woman, but it's there just to ensure that we know that this birth is not touched by the sin that has been around since the man and the woman listened to the serpent. The Spirit of God is baptizing so that the Word of God will bring life and in that Word Jesus takes the rebuke and the warning to a new depth, adultery in your heart. 
but also the promise and the gift to a new height. Where does the kingdom of God take you? To a wedding banquet in heaven. A wedding banquet about which every wedding reception is intended to be a foretaste. And notice that even when Jesus is careful to warn us against idealizing marriage, that's no part of his gospel, he harnesses the gift, the relationship of mother and brother and sister he's talking about, but not just biological. They may be, and wonderful, but they are those who do his will. And the recovery of listening to the Lord God doesn't minimize the gift and promise of marriage, but warns us that marriage and those who are married, as with all creation, need to enter the kingdom of heaven to be delivered from Satan's curse. Jesus, as we've seen, gives full authority to the text from Genesis 1 and 2, warns against all fornication, that general term for immorality, and which, as we've seen, include the prohibition of same-sex practice. So as we continue through the apostles and the New Testament here, the texts are interwoven as we hear the word of God continuing to shape this community that is intended to live and bring blessing to the world. In Acts, that Joel prophecy is repeated. The image bearers are to be spirit-filled for Israel, of course, but now including the Gentiles. So do the Old Testament texts fall away? Is there now a different understanding of the law written on the hearts by the Holy Spirit? And in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, dealing precisely with the issues of circumcision and the food laws, the Gentiles are exhorted to avoid fornication. Though the new family is marked by baptism, not circumcision, the baptism is a sign of the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection to new life which includes all the gifts and promises of sex and marriage, even in their welcome of the Gentiles. The council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 takes its cue from Leviticus 17:18, indicating that the Holy Spirit hasn't stopped speaking through those ancient texts to shape the life of the new community. When we come to Romans 1, It's almost like a New Testament equivalent of the early chapters of Genesis. God giving up those who exchange the truth, his truth for a lie. And none of us can point the finger. We are all sinners, including we are all sexual sinners. But just as we were in Adam, now we are in Christ. And that means not being conformed to the world, which which includes not being conformed sexually, being transformed. And they were. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, such were some of you. Homosexual practices described there. But now you're washed, you're sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And of course, with marriage here in the new community, singleness, celebrated and honored, a sacrificial act for the kingdom of God is celebrated and known. What we see in all these early communities in the early church, in the light of the revelation of God from the beginning in honoring marriage, in refusing to gratify the flesh, not living as the Gentiles used to live, discovering in Christ the fullness of marriage between a husband and wife and the possibility of imitating Jesus in singleness. See, see, I mean, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, all there. 
And in Hebrews 13, let marriage be held in honor. Why? Because it's the means of life and community and the enjoyment of the land, of Israel in the old covenant and the whole creation in the new. God's gifts so that we can know ourselves as bearers of his image, men and women, for the blessing of the nations. And not only this, but as the New Testament community and the apostles receive and enter into this truth, they see a greater mystery revealed of Christ and the church. It's a beautiful picture, so utterly, radically different from that which had been settled in for in the marriage of antiquity. Now the submission, the honoring of one another in the patriarchal culture of the ancient world, there is the astonishing call to the husband to sacrifice himself for his wife as Christ has done for his bride, the church. We see this pattern, this loving call to marriage in John and Jude and Revelation, a call to the church to deal with sexual immorality, recognizing the judgment that is coming and what will be excluded as well as what and who will be included in the new heaven and the new earth. There is just nothing here I, to say that same-sex practice will find a place in that new heaven and new earth. Rather, the Bible ends with those wonderful words, the spirit and the bride saying, come. So what are we to say? A, I'm, I know it's ridiculous to try and cover all that in, in a time like this, but I, I just have a sense for ourselves and for our churches and for our, our people, young people, young you know, Christians, wondering what does this all mean? To have this sense of the kind of all-pervasive message and, and, and direction of scripture is so important. How are we to understand this doctrine, teach it, refute error, hand on entire the faith? Well, receiving the gift and promise and taking heed to the warning and rebuke. Um, I, I know you've got all these, or, or some of them. Um, uh, Martin Davies' wonderful book from Church of England Evangelical Council. Um, uh, I, I've got a few copies of John Stott's same-sex relationships uh, that's just been re-released. I think that's an excellent uh, guide. Um, and. <laughs> Lee kindly asked me to contribute to Article 32 on marriage uh, in, uh, in this, and I, and I commend that to you. Um, and of course, in terms of stories in relation to same-sex marriage, living out true freedom, trust, and so on, um, and many other recent works, there's some David Bennett's A War of Loves and the tremendous work of Sam Berry, Ed Shaw, say nothing of Vaughan Roberts and many, many others. The goodness of God's gift, the glory and profundity and the blessing is what we're to receive. And though we are all affected by the fall and by sin, we're all capable of knowing the reality of the resurrection life of Jesus. This doesn't mean we don't hear the strict words even of Jesus, for example, on divorce and letting God come to us in the difficult difficulties of this. It is difficult. But we, in that place, discover the grace of God meeting us and saving us. 
So just as I finish with one or two comments about our contemporary situation. What then of Christians who believe they must self-identify as gay and that God does not love, and, and who say God doesn't love them? Well, I hope we can see in the Bible that God's love and promise extends to the whole of creation, Gentiles as well as Israel, and that same spirit is given to all in Christ, as well as the rebuke and warning, but the gift and invitation is to everybody without exception. As part of the shared conversation, I've been a, in one or two of those experiences over the last few years, and uh, I just was thinking of a particular one in the Scottish Episcopal Church where I was asked a few years ago to attend before the recent conversation, so you can tell how effective I was. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was asked in the group uh, by a, a gay Christian uh, in one of the churches, he said to me, what would be lost if the church accepted same-sex practice? Quite a good question. Uh, and uh, it was even then, uh, I think a year or two before we knew whether same-sex marriage was coming. And I didn't give an immediate answer because I wanted to listen and think about that. Um, but uh, as I was just praying and thinking overnight, I came back the following day and I just... I came back to, with this one word answer, really. What would be lost? Obedience would be lost. <laughs> the one quality the Lord God needed in Eden for the relationship of the man and the woman with him and the creation to flourish. Obedience leads to... Disobedience leads to distance and distortion and in the end, destruction. But if you want that wonderful inclusio in Romans at the beginning end, what is it that we're called to? The obedience of faith. And suppose I'd done this study on injustice and idolatry and then concluded, well, it's okay, we can just have good disagreement about this. You can have idolatry and be true to the living God. You can tolerate injustice and live with it. You'd look at me and you'd say, are you kidding? Similarly with immorality and God's gift of sex and marriage, even though we, we all know we are all sinners, it's one of the reasons why I've included in some of those texts in the references to choosing. It's significant at the end of Deuteronomy and the message of the prophets. Of course, we must listen, know contemporary stories of oppression in relation to marriage, some dreadful things. Scripture doesn't idealize marriage, nor should we. And actually, I've got a rather nice, I don't think I've got time for it, have I? Um, no, no, I haven't. But anyway, in, it's from the second book of Holmes in 1571, and it's a, a sobering account of marriage in the 16th century, so we don't idealize it. But God speaks of gift and marriage, and like all gifts, they can be abused. But the answer to bad marriage is not no marriage, but good marriage. And friends, I can't see anything in these texts which legitimate the blessing of same-sex practice in relationships, still less the idea that such a thing as same-sex marriage even exists in the mind of God. Nor can I see what is called gender transition is even possible in the creation of God. Of course, these are hugely complex questions in which the word of God is faced with the contemporary realities and we need to wrestle with that, part of why we're here today. Um, 
And as with the stories in the word of God itself, these questions involve real people and real pain. But that's why the promise and gift of God need to be heard and affirmed and obeyed, even as God meets us in the Lord Jesus in our brokenness and sin and brings healing and new creation. And I just commend Martin Davies' treatment of some of these important questions for us in Glorify God in Your Body. Let me conclude with this. Um, it's a reference that I, that, I, that I used when I was speaking last year to the Evangelical Fellowship in the Church in Wales when I was speaking on Revelation 1 to 3. And, um, and that invitation to choose is there, yeah, repeated in the letter of the seven churches. Because earlier that year, I'd come across, I, I, many of you will know C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, this kind of a metaphor tale of a, of a bus journey from hell to heaven and I must have read it hundreds of times but as I read these words from the preface they struck me with a new force and I leave them as a kind of concluding comment in terms of our response to the word of God this is what uh, Lewis said in this preface Blake wrote the marriage of heaven and hell if I've written of their divorce, this is not because I think myself a fit antagonist for so great a genius, nor even because I feel at all sure that I know what he meant. <laughs> but in some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or. Granted skill and patience and above all time enough some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. The mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we would like to retain. And C.S. Lewis then says this, this belief I take to be a disastrous error. You cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. And I believe that these texts on the gift and promise and the rebuke and warning which run right through Scripture old and new in relation to sex and marriage between a man and a woman invite this kind of choice. The gift of sex and marriage is very good. And that goodness relates to the opening up of even more life and goodness down the generations when we say yes to God's gifts and are willing to trust him for the no. So may today, God, as God invites us, may we give our yes to the fullness not only in this creation but in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, and of all that God is still to do in us and through us. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Thank you.